Welcome to the Soul Craft Your Life podcast. My name is Carmen Marshall, and I'm a life design and manifestation expert, a seven-figure entrepreneur, wellness educator, and a dance teacher. And I'm passionate about helping you create a magical and fulfilling life. Whether you want to discover your purpose, learn how to attract financial abundance, or create more health, balance, joy, and connection in your life, the Soul Craft Your Life podcast has got you covered. One part strategy and one part soul. Each week we explore both the practical and the spiritual with intriguing experts and fascinating human beings, all sharing their wisdom to help expand what we think is possible for our own lives. The goal? To help you create a life you love on your own terms that stems from your soul. Let's dive in and discover what this life has to offer each of us. Hello, gorgeous souls. Welcome to episode 10, which is all about healing from depression and grief with Peter Nathaniel Lee. This is a really special episode for me because number one, Peter is my husband. And number two, he has just published his first book, Walk With Me. And number three, it covers topics that I think are really important to talk about openly, mental health, depression, and suicide. And while this is a deep conversation, just like the book, it's also full of hope, inspiration, synchronicities, following your heart, and the magic of life. So a little bit about Peter. There have been three constants in Peter's life. The desire to travel the world, love deeply, and the inescapable impulse to write about the two. At 16, he joined the Royal Navy, where he traveled to many strange and exotic places in the company of honorable pirates, as he calls them. Inspired by tales of backpacking, he then left the Royal Navy and he spent the next several years living out of a bag, wandering around Asia and South America. He lived in ashrams, surf retreats, kung fu schools, shamanic tree houses, before returning to the UK to complete a degree in creative writing and English literature. In 2010, Peter walked the Camino de Santiago, which inspired Walk With Me which is a story of adventure and spiritual awakening, but it's also an up-close and personal story of healing from grief and depression and overcoming generational addiction. Peter currently, of course, lives between Bali, Australia, and the world with me, and he works as a breathworker therapist, entrepreneur, he co-founded and manages Sacred Lotus Love, our online gift company, and a freelance writer. He continues to explore life inside and out, in the spirit of a pilgrim. I'm looking forward to introducing Peter to you. Although, if you listen to episode four, Calling in the One, you already know a little bit about him. Because I really want to talk about these important topics, but also the process of writing a book, especially if you have a book inside of you, and maybe you've struggled with the confidence to write it and get it out into the world. This podcast is also for you. All right, let's dive into these important topics. So Peter, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. First of all, this book is absolutely amazing. And I mean, I'm obviously a little bit biased, but I couldn't stop laughing, crying. It's just such a journey. And I know it's been such a journey for you, 10 years in the making and such a process, which I really want to get into. But before we do that, can you tell our listeners where you are right now and why you're there so they can kind of get acclimated and visualize you where you're at? Sure. Well, first off, hello, stranger. 
<laughs> I know. Interviewing you feels kind of weird, eh? <laughs> yeah, it feels, it, feels, uh, it feels bizarre. So, well, I'm in London and uh, I'm originally from England, as your listeners could probably tell from my accent. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on a trip to visit the UK, uh, see friends and family. And then I'm actually about to start a new journey, which is walking to Rome, which is a 90 day journey. And um, it's kind of the sister pilgrimage of the Camino de Santiago, of which the book is about. And it's so timely, eh? Like to, as your book has just been released, you're now doing the second Camino. So it's just perfect timing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be hopefully a great way to raise um, not just the profile of the book, but also because people are reading the book, they can uh, be checking in with me and my progress. And uh, the title of the book is Walk With Me. So um, yeah, hopefully readers will be able to feel like they are on a, on a new journey with me as they're reading the, the previous one. Yeah, and we'll talk more about that too, the drone that you have and just little things that you are, are doing to, to have people take that journey. Yeah. But let's go back to the re- real beginning. Why did you write this book? Okay, so I wrote the book. Uh, it's a true story. I knew when I walked the community of Santiago that it was going to be an amazing adventure. I just knew it. I knew I was on a kind of hero's journey at that point in my life. And so I always, you could say I was in search of a story, but um, your sort of motivations change over the years and um, you start to delve into uh, the undercurrents of why I was walking the Camino in the first place. So when I walked the Camino, for the most part, I was having this amazing experience. I was seeing this beautiful countryside, these historic towns and cities, meeting people from all over the world, from you know different ethnicities, different religions, different backgrounds, cultures. And you know they were all sharing stories with me and I was sharing stories with them. And what I began to realize in asking each person, why you walk in the community of Santiago, was there was always a real deep and profound reason for their journey. Um, initially it might be, you know, I've I've got a couple of weeks holiday, you know, or just needed to stretch my legs, but you know, after a few miles on the track, you'd really get down to the, the real motivation and it'd be something really meaningful. Um, one of the guys I met, uh, you know, he was carrying the ashes of his best man who had sadly died and always dreamed of walking the community of Santiago. And, um, uh, the guy I met, his name was Lucas and he hated hiking. He hated walking. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, but he just felt he needed to do that to honor his friend. You know, I met, uh, you know, a, a lady it, when I walked the Camino, I was only 27. So, um, I met this lady called Gemma from Barcelona. You know, she was my age now. So, you know, 41 and, uh, she felt she was at a real crossroads in her life. Uh, she'd been done the whole corporate career thing. And now she was, you know, trying to explore what the next next period of her life was going to be. Um, I met a guy who was, um, you know, he was actually ill with cancer and he was determined to walk 40 kilometers every single day, helping fellow pilgrims to reach their destination. And, you know, he was just one of the most vital and healthy feeling people I'd ever met in my life. So. Everyone had, everyone had a story. Everyone had a deep motivation. And as I was walking, I started to think, well, what is my motivation? 
you know, because um, everybody was like, oh, you're such a happy person. You're such a, you've always got a smile on your face. You know, you make everyone laugh. And um, why are you walking the Camino de Santiago? And so through that process of walking and having time alone and time with, with other people, I really began to look into myself and realize I wasn't just carrying my big heavy bag. I was really carrying a huge amount of grief um, and unprocessed, you know, trauma for the want of a better word um, of things that I hadn't really dealt with processed from the previous couple of years of my life. So yeah, it'd been a, a sort of difficult couple of years for my family. Um, I should say, you know, we had a really beautiful childhood, very kind of uh, dynamic family. My parents were musicians, but also teachers. And so they had that sort of groundedness, but also an artistic flair. Um, we had great family holidays. We're always around the table debating and laughing. But as we got older, um, sort of, you know, as can happen, cracks appeared in the family. My dad uh, had a struggle with alcoholism um, and that actually led to him taking his own life. So around about that time, you know, through the process of trying to support him and just dealing with the, the sort of stress of all that, I actually became very depressed myself. Mm. And so, you know, there was a, a, you know, a strong possibility at that time that I was considering, you know, following my father quite literally in his footsteps. Um, uh, instead of doing that, I decided to make a radical change in my life, you know, close my business that I'd created to pay my way for university, um, say goodbye to all my friends, turn down this very lucrative position I had with a construction recruitment firm, um, ended a seven year relationship, which had been a huge positive force in my life. Um, I left everything. Um, mm. it was, you know, one of those, um, burning down the barn so you can see the moon kind of situations mm. It's sort of an act of desperation, but also one of inspiration really felt like I was being called to do this. It felt like you know, all my inner guidance was pointing in that direction. And I set off, uh, flew to France. Uh, I had no guidebook, no maps. I knew nothing about the Camino. I knew nothing. <laughs> about what I was, what a pilgrimage was at that point in my life. I was like, this is an old word from, you know, I know it's a medieval thing. That's all I knew about it. Um, but I had a friend who had, was walking it four weeks ahead and she just sent me a simple text message, uh, which I received on the train to the Pyrenees. And it said, fly to St. Jean-Pied-de-Port. That's a border town in the Pyrenees on the French side. Find the pilgrim office, get your pilgrim passport. That's a document that allows you to stay in the hostels along the way. And then follow the yellow arrows until you reach the sea. And that was all I had. And uh, I also, you know, I only set off with 300 pounds. And after the first day in St. Jean-Pied-de-Port, beautiful historic tourist town, I, you know, probably spent 50 or 60 uh, euros on that first day, just, you know, for breakfast and some supplies. So I quickly ran out of money and I was out of money within two weeks. And it actually took me two months to finish the Camino. A lot of people could do it in 30 days or 40 days, but I took some diversions, which we can perhaps get into. 
Um, so uh, yeah, I actually walked for about uh, three weeks with no money at all. So it was an yeah, adventure. So many <laughs> layers, you know, the, the stories that you tell that you alluded to in the beginning, like every person that you met, the stories of their life and what they were doing. Yeah. And then of course your story being integrated into that, like your own yeah. journey as everything unfolds. And, and that's why at the beginning I said like, I mean, I've, I've personally read the book, I think around three times because I went through it and edited some of it, but every time laughing, crying, like it just pulls you in so much. But then I think the other thing that's so interesting is you following those synchronicities and following your heart and just being led. And even when you had no money, like just trusting it would work out. It's such a big, big part and, and big message, I think, in the yeah. whole story. Absolutely. And yeah, I should say for listeners, Carmen was the best first reader you could wish for because <laughs> uh, I, I, I'd always know if I'd hit the note right because Carmen would begin to cry. So you know, sometimes just the, the blurb, you know, <laughs> there'd be tears. So yes. Um, but if she wasn't crying, I was like, oh no, you know, I haven't. It's not uh, good enough. <laughs> so, uh, you yeah, you, re- you laughed in all the right places. But, you know, anyone that knows you, uh, whether it's professionally or, you know, on a personal level, also knows that you're, you know, you, you're, you know, you're very truthful and you will, you'll be honest, you'll be kind, um, mm. you'll be firm, you'll be honest. And, um, you know, sometimes that's challenging, right? It's challenging mm. between a writer and an editor, but it's, you know, also between a man and a wife. But, um, you know, you would never change, I would never change it. Um, mm. So it was a great, it was a great practice for us, wasn't it? Because it's, it was. you know, you, you know, as someone who loves and cares about me, that one day this book is going to have to go out into the wild, as it were, and it would be read and seen by people. And so you're not going to let me just put something out there that's, uh, you don't really believe in. So, um, I would have to take your criticism on a face value, you know, and, and be a criticism. Yeah. I remember years ago, you told me something about one of the hardest things to do is to murder your babies. And that's like, as a writer to, to take out parts that mean so much. And I, I remember that like, and I'm, (laughs) I'm not a writer. I'm like a blogger. So, you know, if I like scratch something out, it doesn't really matter. But I so got that when I was saying to you, you know, maybe this is a little bit long-winded and you're like, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was um, James Joyce, the writer, James Joyce. Um, so I can't claim that, but yeah, every writer that goes for a writing course gets to hear those words, you know, murder your darlings. I think it is. Yes. Yes. That's it. Yeah. And yeah. So I is, you know, so I just wanted to acknowledge you and appreciate you um, through that. So yeah, you mentioned about synchronicities and and that is a big part of the story and we can definitely get into that more. And I should really, you know, outline for your listeners that, um, you know, I was raised as a Christian in a sort of Church of England sense, you know, we would go to Sunday school and my dad would go to church and, um, you know, at school, you know, they would have um, nativity plays and things like that, but it wasn't a huge part of our life. And um you know, when I was around this time, I'd, I'd probably rejected, you know, God and anything like that when I was about 19. So um, I don't think I would have described myself as an atheist, but I was, there was a, something of a void, you could say, um, through much of my early 20s where, you know, I would 
go for hikes or I'd go for walks, you know, in the woods and things. And, and I would feel, I would feel that there was something there out there more than just myself, but I didn't really have a, a landscape or a, um, you know, an, a sort of religious architecture to frame my experiences. So when uh, a friend of mine, the, the, this is how the book begins, she invites me to go see a psychic with her. You know, I was very skeptical and also a little fearful because we'd grown up with lots of ghost stories and things in the house and we loved to terrify each other. And, um, but it was actually going to see that psychic that really kick-started um, me listening to those deeper and higher uh, parts of myself. And it was through following those, um, some would say intuitions, some would say, you know, guidance. Um, yeah, I started to follow the sort of metaphorical yellow arrows um, of life, which led me to the Camino. So can you explain what the Camino is? And, and actually that there's three Caminos. Yeah, absolutely. So um the, the Camino is like, it actually predates Christianity. It, there was a Celtic uh, pilgrimage, um, which would uh, go across northern Spain. And they say it, it follows the Milky Way, because if you walk it, the path at night, you can see the Milky Way directly above and, and, and before you. And the legend is that it's actually the, the souls and the dust of the pilgrims' uh, feet up in the sky. So... Yeah, basically, in the medieval period, pilgrims pilgrimages were the super holiday of the of the time, and you know people would go to pilgrimages all over Europe. But the biggest was the Camino de Santiago, and in the, the sort of esoteric tradition, as explained by Paulo Coelho, the walk to Santiago was the um, journey of the humble heart, the humble man. And, you know, I certainly experienced that since I walked with no money and, you know, had to just surrender to the kindness of strangers and to, you know, um, trusting the universe was taking care of things. Um, and then the one to Rome is the uh, Franciscan way. And that is, um, or the journey of St. Francis, that is the um, journey of the heart. And then the final one to Jerusalem is known as the journey of heaven's gate. And so the idea is that when you do these journeys, each, each one has a certain resonance and a certain kind of soul's, soul's uh, achievement or soul's mission uh, that you, you kind of harness as you walk them. So I met this beautiful couple who, um, in this ruins of this church, I think I mentioned before, and, you know, he had been a, you know, he'd been a, petty criminal, a heroin addict. He described his life before the Camino as what he was the walking dead. And he actually uh, was sentenced to prison. And then the judge said to him, rather than going to prison, if you walk the Camino de Santiago, I will, you know, reduce your sentence and mm. or suspend the sentence. And apparently that's fairly common in the Latin countries. You know, if you haven't got the, the grades for, to go to university, they'll waiver it if you've done the Camino. Because there's an understanding in the culture that it has such a profound effect of change on people that, mm. you know, getting them to do that is going to be far more beneficial to them and society. And, you know, that's what he did. And he actually told us one night um, about the kind of structure of the Camino. You could say the narrative 
uh, foundations of the, of the Camino that from St. Jean to uh, Burgos is kind of like uh, to the Pyrenees is the birth of the pilgrim. It says you're going up over the Pyrenees, you're heading into the light. It's painful. You know, it's like a seven hour climb, climb over the mountains. It's like, it's the birth of the pilgrim. It's all pain heading into the light. Um, then it's the life of the pilgrim from Rosa Valles to Burgos. You're meeting new people. You're walking through verdant forests and lush landscapes and in historic towns and cities and villages and everything is exciting and new. You're surrounded by beauty. Um, and then after after Burgos, between Burgos and Leon, is a section known as the Meseta. Lots of people skip this out. They'll take the bus to to miss it out because it's flat, boring. Uh, it's a kind of desert. It's not an African-style desert, but it's a Spanish desert and um, very dry and flat and lots of abandoned villages. So people miss it out. They skip it. But he said to us, that is the most important part of your journey. Mm-hmm. Death of the pilgrim, because what happens is you're walking, there's nothing to distract you, there's no beauty to look at. Um, it's just you and the straight, flat road. And what happens is, and it's certainly happened to me and it happened to many people, <clears throat> without all those distractions, you go in and then your pain comes out. And so mm-hmm. that's when you really face your past, you face the things you're not willing to look at. And, you know, it's only through going going through that process that you then get to the next stage, which is known as the rebirth. So that's from Leon until Finisterre. And mm. all along the Camino, people say Bon Camino means, you know, good way. And when you get uh, be- beyond the death of the pilgrim stage, people start to say Utreya. It means go, go higher, go further. It's just so fascinating to hear the history of the Camino and that there's parts to the Camino and that there's three Caminos. It's just such a journey with so many layers, eh? So what would you say made the Camino so healing for you? It's healing for so many people, but for you specifically, what made it so healing for you? Um, a couple of things. Um, it's perhaps worth laying out that I met this guy and his wife who I met them in the ruins of a church. I was walking through a forest and, you know, you, I'd read books like the, the um, Celestine Prophecy and The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. And most of the people I'd met up to this point, so this was about halfway through my Camino, most of the people I'd met, really amazing people, but they were people that uh, they, they may have had a deeper reason for walking, but for the most part they were, you know, they were doing their walk and then they were going back to normal life. But there was another type of pilgrim of which, you know, I would say I was I was one of, which is you didn't want to just go back to normal life at the end of the walk. You were looking to for radical change, you know, for um, you know, emotional and spiritual growth and that life would never be the same again. Um, and so I was having all this fun, I was meeting people and I but you know, we were having these really deep conversations and I began to notice that as they talk about the Celestine prophecy, you know, there's this idea that when you're really present with someone, sometimes things will come through you and that you just trust what that is. And so you, you know, that, that requires you risk being vulnerable. It means you're sharing things that you perhaps wouldn't share to people that you, you know really well. But the great thing about the Camino is you're, you're all strangers and, you know, you might meet one day 
and you might share the most intimate and you know vulnerable secrets that you have because you know that you you either won't see them again or you might just see them after a day or two or it just feels right and what i began to notice was each person seemed to have a little piece of the jigsaw puzzle that was missing for one another um, and you'd only find that if you were willing to share if you were willing to be vulnerable so you know for example i met uh, this lady called pat and you know she'd worked for a big pharmaceutical company and it was really useful actually because that day i was in agony i had really bad pain in my heels and blisters and i was too proud to tell anybody and so i was hobbling along and uh, lost all the people i'd made friends with and you know was walking at a snail's pace and she came along and she was injured and she had all these painkillers. So, you know, it was, it was really helpful, <laughs> but she was very apologetic about having worked for a pharmaceutical company. And I, I you know, I, it wasn't until much later, I sort of began to understand that for her, but I don't know whether it was the pain in my ankles or just her, her own sort of willingness to be vulnerable about some of the things that she was sharing. But I told her about my depression that I'd been through. Um, and she she was like, you know, what does it feel like? And so, you know, I began to try and explain what it's like to be in a deep depression. Uh, for me, you know, it's probably over a year period, but the, the depth of it was uh, probably about three months. Um, and it was quite severe. You know, I, sometimes I couldn't get out of bed for days. Um, you know, it's almost like you're you're trying to recall a dream. You're sleepwalking, um, unable to uh, leave the house. You know, I probably you know I didn't shower for like thirty days, and you know, just everything sort of collapses. And then you find yourself standing in the middle of a, of your local town, and you don't know how you've got there. You know, it was like that. Mm. And so I was describing that to her, and describing how you know you're desperate for someone to come and help you, but. Whenever somebody comes towards you, you, the depression makes you interpret whatever they're saying and whatever their intention is, you, you kind of flip it in your mind and you interpret it in a negative way. And so you end up pushing the very people that are trying to help, you push them away. And, you know, in sharing that with her, she stopped me and she took my hand and, you know, she had tears in her eyes and she says, oh, my daughter has been depressed. And, I just didn't believe her because there didn't seem to be anything physically wrong with her. And she was like, I need to, I need to find a phone. You know, this is before, before most people mm. phones. She was like, I need, I need to find a phone. And, um, you know, that really shifted something for her hearing an outsider's perspective. It made her realize that her daughter could be suffering mentally, um, even though there was no sort of outward physical sign of it. So, I think culturally we're much better about talking about mental health now, but um, in 2010, it was, you know, it was still very taboo. And so, yeah, so, you know, in me sharing that, that seemed to help heal something with her and she'd done the same with me and on it went, you know, every day meeting people. And I began to realize, you know, my heart was kind of shattered from everything I'd been through, but in the sharing of these stories and the receiving of theirs, it was like my heart was coming back together. Mm. And that really accumulated in um, in meeting an elderly German lady called Gilda um, outside Legrono. Not sure how much I want to go into it because I'll probably end up in tears on the, on the <laughs> podcast, <laughs> and then you'll be in tears, and then we'll all be in, in a bit of a mess. But um, yeah, it was you know some 
maybe serendipity or synchronicity or um, there were so many things that aligned for us, you know, even down to her having uh, two older brothers and an older sister. Um, her father had also committed suicide. And, you know, she, you know, it, it, it felt like an incredibly magical experience for meeting this lady. And um, I'd never met anybody that had lost somebody to suicide before, let alone the father as well. So that moment was hugely healing for me. And it was actually the first time I'd ever told anybody that my father had taken his life. It was the first time. First time. Wow. First time I vocalized mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, it's all described in the book and, and kind of explained there. But um, yeah, she was a remarkable person. She was like in her late seventies walking the Camino and she had a huge, she had a really powerful story herself. She'd, you know, I don't want to use the word suffered is maybe not the best word, but she'd been through hell um, as a young person growing up in um, post-war Berlin. You know, she was, I don't know how much of the story to give away, but she, yeah, she she had an incredibly tough um, experience and her family actually uh, kicked her out of the family home because she'd been raped by uh, Russian soldiers, you know, after the fall of Berlin. And she became pregnant and she didn't know what was happening to her. So, you know, obviously the signs of pregnancy started to show. Her family were were heavily religious, um, you know, were furious and thought she'd been fraternizing with foreign soldiers and this kind of thing. And um, they basically told her, you know, you you have to give the baby up for adoption or terminate it. and she decided to run away. She she felt that life inside of her and she ran away. She was only only 15 or 16 years old. She had to live on the streets in Berlin, but slowly, surely she managed to survive. And an important detail in this is that her father was actually quite high ranking in the Nazi party. And um, her son, grew up to be a uh, documentary filmmaker and he'd won a hugely prestigious international award for a documentary made about peace and reconciliation in Palestine and in Israel between a Palestinian family that had lost their child, you know, had been killed in, in the conflict and a Israeli soldier's family who'd he'd also been killed. And it was about those two families coming together and donating the organs of the, the killed soldier to the to an injured child, and it was this incredible story about peace and reconciliation. And he attributed it to his mother because his mother, every year since he w- he was able to walk, would go to the family house estate and knock on the door and you know ask them to forgive her. It's mm. very hard to think like why should she ask for forgiveness? You know. Mm. And um, she said every every single year they would slam the gates in her face. And right up until the point where her mother was in a deathbed and her mother still refused to see her and actually died without, without accepting that forgiveness or offering it. And, you know, then her older sister, um, then her older brother, and on it went. But every year, and I think that when I met her, she had one sibling left and she was still going once a year to uh, try and get that reconciliation. 
So when I met her, it was incredibly healing for me because one, it was the first time I ever acknowledged, you know, outwardly that, you know, I'd lost my father in that way, but also I was completely estranged from my family. Um, you know, my dad's death, it shattered the family. So at that point I was effectively homeless. I was, um, you know, cut off from my mom, my, my siblings. And to meet this, you know, 70, eight-year-old little tiny lady who was walking the Camino um, who had been through, you know, a real powerful story like that and that she had such hope um, and forgiveness in her heart. And just before we parted, she pulled out this small deck of cards that she had and she held them to me and she said, you know, choose a card. Um, and they were, they were prayers basically from her church. And I, I chose this card and it said, the only way to de to defeat despair is to overwhelm it with hope. And, you know, I would then carry those words with me for the, the rest of my Camino, the next sort of 500 kilometers. And it really got me through. So, Yeah, I think that's what makes this book so special because the stories that you share, it really makes you look at your own life. Like even the idea that if we really thought of everyone we meet, shows us a piece of the puzzle of our life. Yeah. You know, like you, you saw that on the Camino and then took that into your life. And if we all can think of that, like every person we meet is showing us a piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And then all the different motifs like forgiveness and it just really makes you look at your life. But without, it's like a deep, profound book, but there's so much lightness and hope in it as well yeah. and laughter. And I think yeah. that mix is what just makes it so unique. Yeah. And then also you focus on two topics and you're shedding light and, and really helping people be able to talk about them, mental illness, depression, and suicide. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, uh, um, these are difficult subjects to talk about and, mm. you know, how do you get someone to read a book <laughs> when you you're like, Oh, what have you written this book about? This sounds great. And you're like, wow, it's about suicide and depression. <laughs> you know, how many people say, I want to read that. Yeah. But it's um, like the magic of your book because it brings in all these other things that yeah. you, it, it's kind of, it takes you, I think that's part of the whole human experience. And I think that's what your book does is it's yeah. a whole human experience. Mm. Like, yes, it's sad. Yes, it's profound. Yes, it's meaningful, but it's light. It's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> the dialogue yeah. just kills yeah. you. It's an, I mean, it's an adventure story. So, um, <laughs> I mean, before I get to that, something I wanted to, to sort of tap into you just said is, you know, um, and this, uh, you know, you come across this in all sorts of spiritual teachings, but if you treat somebody that you meet a complete stranger, or if it's somebody you wake up with every single morning, if you treat them like they have within them, you know, the answer, you know, the, or the possibility of like something that's going to be profound, profound for you, you treat them with, with a respect automatically, you know, and yeah. so much of modern culture makes us talk over each other. We, you know, we, we hog the microphone. We all just want to have our say and we want to, our ego takes over, but, you know, having that mindset of, okay, they may have the peace inside of them. If only I'm willing to listen, you know, mm. to wait and listen. And so, yeah. Um, and you're right, you know, writing about these difficult topics, uh, you know, the marketing team in my, you know, 
up in my brain is like, <laughs> this is a no, mate. You know, you shouldn't start the book when you're depressed. You know, you shouldn't start the book. You know, where I started. You know, you should be in the happy zone. But, um, um, and yeah, you know, even even my ego or or my desire to uh, to hide myself um, has been challenged because, you know, do I put my name on the book? Do I write it under a pen name? Um, you know, it's a, a continuous, um, in some ways I'm still walking the Camino. I'm still, uh, in this continuous process of being vulnerable, you know, like, can I keep my heart open? Can I keep being vulnerable? Am I still willing to share? Am I still willing to receive? You know, and you can't receive unless you're willing to share. So, um, yeah, um, you're right. There is re- there is some real challenging parts in this book. Um, it will have people in in tears. It might make some people angry, um, but there's also a lot of joy and light and hope and fun and adventure and. You know, when I originally started to write this book, it was all the latter part. It was all the adventure. It was the new horizons every day. It was discovering these amazing places and these fun times I had. You know, those, all of that was true. But what was unseen, what was unspoken, was just as present. And it added, added the context to why I was having such an amazing time. Um, you know, because some people you meet like, wow, you had such a profound time, you know, experience. You know, for me, I just walked, you know, I just went there. And so I started to think, well, why was it so profound for me? Why was it such, why did I have such highs on that walk? Time for a quick commercial break. It's July and we're halfway through 2023. It's crazy, eh? But with six months left, now is the ideal time to refocus and recommit to your 2023 dreams and goals. My Create Your Dream Year five-day course in just one and a half hours per day will help you reach your goals this year. Not next year, not in five years, but this year. Why? Because Create Your Dream Year is not your normal goal-setting course. It's a goal-manifesting course. It turns traditional goal-setting on its head. It's the antidote to why most people don't achieve their goals and they actually stop dreaming. It combines the practical with the spiritual. It gets your subconscious fully on board. It clears limiting beliefs quickly without years of work. And it gives you my personal process, a framework that you can return to every year with me. I hold this course as a live virtual event once a year, but don't worry if you missed it because I've created an on-demand version complete with all the bells and the whistles. With the same lifetime access to all my yearly live Create Your Dream Year virtual events at no extra cost. And my five-day summer Create Your Dream Year on-demand sale is now open. So you can go through the program completely on your own pace and on your own schedule at this crucial halfway point in the year. But it's only available until Sunday, July 16th at midnight ET time. It's just a five-day sale, so hurry, because then it's not available until January 2024. So if you're ready to learn the best ways to set goals and manifest your most important dreams this year, and you want to get the exact system that I've used over and over to manifest my dream homes, my dream businesses, and my dream life into existence, then go to carmenmarshall.com 
forward slash create dash 2023 dash on dash demand. I'll put the link in the show notes as well to register and get started today. I can't wait to share my process with you and help you make reaching your goals inevitable in 2023. All right, let's get back to the podcast. And the reason for that was the other part of the story was because I'd experienced such huge lows before, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and the, the, you know, my rucksack is such a great metaphor uh, and, you know, just the journey itself, because that was my shadow. I was lugging behind me and not just mine, but also my family's, my, my father's. And so from a sort of crafting a narrative point of view, you know, I, I, I got this idea of telling you know, my story as I'm walking the Camino, but then also my father's story um, kind of coming together. You know, they, they travel alongside each other, but getting closer and closer, and then they meet in the middle. Uh, there's a reckoning, and then it goes on. They, they sort of walk on together. And mm. you know, that's really about, for everybody listening, you know, we all carry a, a generational story. You know, some of us, it's more traumatic than others. Um, some of us, it's a, it's a burden of greatness, perhaps, you know. Um, and we all have to carry that. Um, and, you know, um, some of it we can let go of when we've learned from it. Um, some of it we can heal it and heal it, sending it back. I really believe that. There's a... I think it's a Buddhist notion or is it, uh, maybe a Native American one where it's, you know, that when you heal yourself, you heal seven generations forward and seven generations back. Um, and yeah, that's, that's what, I, that's what the story is all about. And it was such an interesting way where you weaved your dad's story in along yours and then they eventually meet because you really got to know your dad yeah. and to understand you know, suicide, alcoholism. And I just, I thought that was such a great way rather than just shining the light on your journey, but also your father's journey. Yeah. And so kind of feeling that in a way for him as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the really difficult things about suicide, you know, is that the, the manner of death become, you know, ends up defining that person. And, you know, that's part of the tragedy um, because, you know, people find it so traumatic, so difficult to comprehend and also terrifying as well, because if somebody you know and somebody you love and particularly a parent has taken their own life, then it means you could do the same. Mm. And people have a instinctive, ref- you know, a reflex push against that. And maybe that's for a good reason. Um, but what it means is that, you know, the survivors, the family, um, are, their grief isn't recognized. Um, silent grief is a real thing, particularly for children of uh, suicide. And the, per- the person's entire life becomes lost because no one wants to talk about them, um, you know, because they don't want to upset the grieving parties or they don't want to you know, they feel there's such shame and taboo around, around that person that they can't talk about it. Um, and that was very, very true in my family and very true, um, you know, just in the sort of way, way we grew up is that no one talked about things. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to add some context 
uh, for my dad, you know, because at the time, you know, some people were very angry. How could he do this? How could he do this? You know, and, you know, my answer straight away was he was suffering. Mm. You, know? you don't know. You, mm. you don't know what it's like and we shouldn't judge. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think part of me writing this novel was definitely about adding some context. Um, and, you know, probably also important to acknowledge that, you know, um, a lot of my family have a very different take on, on those events. Um, some of them don't believe it was a suicide at all. And it's important to acknowledge that. Um, and also to acknowledge that, you know, this is, um, you know, I'm drawing on my relationship with my dad and my, the version of my dad that I had the relationship with. And so, um, you know, everyone has their own perceptions and their own experience of things. Um, but yeah, I definitely, I, I really felt from a young age, um, that it was my dad who was giving me this lesson. You know, he was keenly aware that he'd, he had inherited his alcoholism from his father and that his father had inherited it from, from his, and that it was a, something that ran through the family line. And, you know, I was deeply grateful um, and, and really I'm deeply grateful because my father's struggle was so much heavier than mine. The burden that he carried that he'd inherited from his father, who, you know, by all accounts, you know, like many men did, they went off to war, World War II, you know, probably the same the generation before World War One. And they were traumatized from their experiences. And, you know, he came back as a brute. And, you know, he brutalized my father as a child um, in all sorts of ways. And, you know, he actually ended up homeless on the street. He ended up, um, you know, my father had to identify his body at the age of 27, which was the same age I was when I identified my father. And, you know, you begin to see that, you know, things do run in cycles and mm -hmm. patterns. And, you know, when my dad began his sort of healing journey before he died, you know, a year before he died, he actually, you know, he died a year so, so without a drink. And my dad being my dad, because he was a very, um, he was a very dynamic person, but he had a, a real personal authority and a way of getting things done. And, uh, you know, that kind of energy, he could make anything happen for anybody. Um, and so one day, you know, I'd offered to support him with A&A &A and take him to A&A &A and things, but the rules were that you, you couldn't allow family members. They never allowed that as an exception. And of course my dad got that exception. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was, I actually attended an AA uh, group with him and I was aware that, you know, yes, I was there to support him, but I was also aware he was trying to teach me, you know, he was, you know, I'd been in the Navy. It's a big drinking culture. Um, you know, even outside of the Navy in, in England, there's a huge sort of binge drinking culture. And, you know, he, I knew he, how much he worried about that it, for, for me. And so um, I feel like this book, um, you know, it, it's in, some, in many ways it's come from my father as much as it's come from me. And I, and I really feel that he felt that there was this 
something being passed down the generations. And, you know, he, he, you know, some people could look at his life and how it ended and say, oh, it was a failure, but I really don't see it as that. I see it more like a relay race. And, you know, from what he had to carry from his father um, and how, you know, how much he managed to not pass on to, to me and my brother, you know, I think he ran probably three quarters of the, the relay race. You know, I just took mm. the baton and did the last bit. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, and isn't that any any parent who is getting passed by generation by generation, you know, can it stop at this generation and that yeah. it has? Yeah. You know, so that's a triumph. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, I, I had, um, you know, I had a in many... Uh, experiences on this walk that are in the book, which were out of the realms of the ordinary, you could say, and, you know, could sound fantastical or even delusional, but in the context of the experiences I was having, uh, they sort of built and built and built that, you know, by the time I got to that point, it was undeniable. I'd reached the end of the, the Camino. For many people, the end of the Camino is arriving at Santiago Compostela, it's the city where the um, body of St. James, uh, the apostles, um, you know, bones are, are kept. Um, and, you know, you walk through the cathedral gates and all your sins are forgiven. And it's, you know, that's the Catholic tradition. You queue up to kiss the statue of St. James. And, um, you know, I was still kind of quite anti-religious at that point. And I remember a friend saying to me, should we queue to, to hug the saint? And I was like, why would I do such a thing? You know, for me, God, the spiritual realm had been experienced out in the fields, in the forests, in the ruins of that church, you know, where nature was reclaiming um, that sacred space. But he said to me, well, think of it this way. When you hug that statue, you'll be hugging every pilgrim that's walked the Camino for a thousand years. And so mm -hmm. I was like, all right, then. <laughs> I want to do that. <laughs> that changes it completely. I could do that. So, um, but for me, the 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 walk was always going to finish at the ocean. So you get you've walked nine hundred kilometers. You arrive at Santiago, and then it's three days more walk to Finisterre. And Finisterre is where Columbus watched the ship go over the horizon and disappear. It was known as the end of the world because it was the most westerly point. Uh, in Europe. And it's, it's one of those funny moments where you catch yourself because you, you know, we were walking out of Santiago, me and some friends that I'd made and uh, you know, you're like, Oh, how far is it? And it's like, Oh, it's only three days walk, you know, oh, only three days walk, you know, it's uh, it's, it, it, you know, sort of one of those moments where you catch yourself as to how much think your perspective has changed. Mm. Think of mm. it. Most people don't even like walking to the shops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um yeah so we got to the ocean and then the tradition there is that you burn your clothes that you'd walked in and you run naked into the ocean and it's uh, like a real rebirthing moment um but the last the last day before you reach the ocean um we arrived at this small town and you know i went to sleep and i woke up in my dream uh to meet my dad and oh, can I get through this without shedding a tear? I don't know. Let's give it a go. But, um, you know, in the dream, I 
I he was on a bench. I came alongside him and I, and I was like, Dad, oh my God, like, you know, I haven't seen him for two years at this point. And, you know, he looked at me and he, ha- he had a face that I hadn't seen him wear in his entire life. The, you know, in the 27 years I'd known him at that point, um, it was a face of complete and utter peace. Mm. And, you know, he stood up and I heard his voice in my mind and he said, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud that you've got to this point and we're going to walk on together. And I knew that when he, what he, when the words that he said, you know, there was so much more meaning than just for me. It wasn't just that I completed the Camino. It was more about what Gilda had said, you know, about forgiveness and, um, you know, having that hope in your heart, you know, the only way to defeat despair is to overwhelm with hope. You know, I'd come to such a great place about myself, about my dad, even about my granddad, who I never met, but just knew as this dark shadow on the family. You know, the the love that I'd sort of cultivated in my heart at that at that point in that place, that's what he was proud of. You know? Mm. So yeah. The, next, the next day we set off. Um, it was, you know, perhaps 10 kilometers to the sea. And we walked through this moorland and it was very desolate. And there was five of us walking together at that point. And we got separated by perhaps a kilometer, two kilometers each. And it was a really desolate kind of moor feeling. And the sky was so big because, you know, you're approaching the ocean. There's no clouds. And the track, the dirt of the track was made of red sand, like blood red sand. And as I walked, small clouds of red dirt were being kicked up by my feet. And I began to feel this presence. Uh, and I would turn around and it was like I could hear footsteps around me and I would see little like almost puffs of sand, like blowing. Mm-hmm. And I just, I felt so at peace and so like, like I, the opposite of alone. I didn't feel alone. I felt so, um, just full of love is perhaps the only way to say it. But, uh, you know, I got to this cliff, I could see the ocean, you know, and after walking 900 kilometers across two countries, and seeing the ocean for the first time, um, it's, a, <clears throat> it's an undescribable joy. And, you know, it's not a joy that whitewashes over things. It's a joy that's earned out of, you know, the pain of blisters and heartache mm. and all of those things. And even in, not in spite of those things, but because of those things, you feel this incredible joy. And I remember just thinking, I could die now and I would, I would be so grateful for the life I've lived. And any day after this will be a bonus. It will be a gift every moment. And as I was feeling that and feeling just like incredible, and um, I was also aware that it was a desolate sort of feeling to the place and that I should wait for my friends because we had been warned that pilgrims had been known to reach the end of their destination and throw themselves from the rocks uh, because, you know, maybe they hadn't found what they were looking for or they were just overcome or any number of things. So I, I was like, I best wait for my friends. Maybe they don't, you know, maybe they, they don't have their dad to walk with them. 
and um you know waited and one by one they all came along and um you know i i uh i told them i said like i felt someone walking with me and they looked at each other and i didn't speak any spanish so they had had to translate for me the whole you know as we traveled together and they said this area they'd been told that morning in the cafe is known as the walk of the ancestors mm. and the red sand is known as the blood of the ancestors and because pilgrims are known sometimes to fail at the end and to fall from the cliffs that one of your ancestors will walk with you on that last stretch wow. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I was just like goosebumps and shivers it's just mm. it's incredible yeah so yeah and through the whole journey in the book you're whether it's you and your story or the stories that you're telling about others, you're just so there the whole time. I think that's why it's so engrossing. Like the way you yeah. tell it, you're just right there. Yeah. But what was it like to write it? So <laughs> obviously this is your story, but the writing I think was just as much of a journey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> so the walking part was the easy bit. <laughs> that's <laughs> writing. Um, yeah. Now it's a great question. I, um, you know, I, I dis discovered I was dyslexic at the age of 26 when I was at uh, university. Uh, so I was a mature student. I went to university at, um, the age of 25. Um, I had left school with, you know, probably two GCSEs level C. Um, I had, you know, joined the Royal Navy at 16 and, you know, I had a mixed time at school. Some of my teachers absolutely loved me. I was very popular. Um, I was very, very bright and, and had a charisma, but, you know, I had this dyslexia, which wasn't really known about then and certainly wasn't tested for. And so, you know, I'd have my stories read out to the top set in English, but I would, I would be in the bottom set and the teachers were always like, you know, he doesn't apply himself. Uh, he's lazy. He's doesn't focus. That that really hurt me because I was I've always been interested in writing. You know, my dad bought me a typewriter when I was like six or seven, or gave me his old one, and I was in love with the sound of the keys. I was in love with the the paper scrolling and the smell of the ink and the magic of seeing words appear on the page. I knew that I wanted to be an author from a very early age, and then to go to school and find out, you know, you continuously been told you're no good at it. Oh, you, you're good at you're good at the story, but you're no good at the the, the the nuts and bolts, the words and the grammar. It it stayed with me, you know. And so I was doing a creative writing degree, and that's when I was tested and, and discovered I was dyslexic. So, um, so began you could say a whole different kind of journey, which was about um, learning to. <laughs> let go of that shoulder, uh, the, the teacher on your shoulder that's constantly criticizing you and telling you, you know, good. And so starting to self um, teach myself uh, spelling and grammar and paragraphs and sentences and all of these things that I had no interest in and was blind to in many ways. I was interested in chapters and scenes and uh, parts and books you know i wasn't interested in uh the the smaller details and so it took me probably you know i came back from the camino i was like i'm gonna write this book this was an incredible experience and i was like wow yeah you should write this book and 
what happened was years would go by. I would meet people. They'd ask me, what do you do? And I'd be like, oh, I'm a writer. They're like, what are you writing? And I'd be like, nothing, you know? And it was uh, over time that really starts to, um, it makes, it erodes your self-confidence and it erodes your sense of self-worth because you realize that you're not living in alignment with your dream. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't walking the path. I was, I was on the verge looking at the path, you know, I was trying to create the space in my life to, um, you know, I kept like going away on, I, I went and worked on a sheep farm in New Zealand, living in this hut in complete solitude. Um, you know, this help look after this farm, and this small family, you know, I did that so that I could write the book, but I spent six months essentially howling at the ceiling because I couldn't get the words out of myself. So when people ask me how long did it take to write the book, I say 10 years. In actual fact, uh, Fingers on the Keyboard was two years with, you know, many gaps between where uh, Carmen would have to tell me off and, you know, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go surfing. And she'd be like, no, you need to be writing your book or <laughs> Um, I was so moved in this book and I was like, you got, and I, I knew you wanted to get it out. It was just, I mean, I think part of it is every time you wrote, you were reliving it, you know, yeah. so there's that and yeah. then dealing with your, you know, dyslexia and what teachers had told you. But I think it's so important for people to hear that. Like, even yeah. though you were told like, you'll never be a writer, like, didn't you have a teacher that told you that? Yeah. I had a teacher who told me and. And it was it was doubly painful because he was probably the first teacher who I really respected and liked, and he'd actually made a huge difference to me. He was an English lit, lit teacher, and in, in many ways he turned he turned things around for me a bit because I was I was heading to you know down a I'd given up I'd checked out basically of school, um, but he got me interested in in literature. Um, but he did say to me, "Look, there's probably no point in banging your head on the university door." Uh, meaning, you know, because he didn't think mm. I was academic and and I could do it. Um, but uh, you know, I did go to university and I did get, mm. get a degree, and I was the first, you know, in my family and extended family to do so. But you know, sometimes these, you know, I remember him saying that. But sometimes that's what you you need to hear to to keep you into action. Yeah, it's so yeah. true. You know, sometimes you need that adversity, um, even though it's painful at the time to hear it. For people that are struggling to write but know they have a story in them, what what do you think helped you the most actually get it done that maybe could help other people as well? Oh, that's easy. Um, just marry a, a life and business coach. <laughs> because, because they will kick your butt every day. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, oh. Yeah, some more, perhaps some more easy and reach practical things would be, um, I mean, I, I tried all sorts of things. I tried uh, doing voice memos and then, uh, you know, typing it up and I got back and there's software where it will convert your voice note into text. It helps if you don't have a broad Derbyshire accent like mine, though, because um, <laughs> the software is geared for Californians, not for Derbyshireites. So, um, look, some really uh, interesting things that I found that worked for me was, you know, I'd be out in the fields, out in the woods for a hike or something, and I'd or, and I'd get all this inspiration, 
and I'd feel like energetically like, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to need to write this and then da, da, da. And then you sit down at the computer and all of that disappears and your mind goes blank and you start feeling tired. And it sounds really obvious now, I think, because it's much more um, kind of, uh, you know, a lot, I know a lot of what you teach is touches on this, but, you know, if you look at yourself physically, you're sat in a chair, um, you know, probably posh is not so good. You're restricting your breathing. So you're not getting the blood flow. You know, you're in a room that's, you know, probably flat packed furniture and not, not a lot of airflow, you know, of course you're not going to feel energetic. Of course mm. your inspiration's not going to be there. So, you know, I figured out that, okay, you know, walking, you're breathing, your blood's flowing, you're in nature, like that, those are the ingredients for creativity and energy. And mm. so, okay, how do you bring that into your, your office? Well, you know, that's really for, for everybody to play with. Um, you know, things I would do would be, I would listen to the music that I would have on as I was hiking. And that was a huge thing for me. It, it really like uplifted me. And depending on what part of the book I needed to write, if it was particularly sad or if it was, you know, more inspirational, I would listen to music without words, more like electronic music or euphoric uh, sort of sounds that would kind of fit the mood that I was trying to conjure. Um, almost like, I wasn't a writer, I was rather I was a composer or, uh, you know, and I was sort of composing the emotion with words, something like that. Yeah, I remember I would, I, you'd be writing and I would go by the door and I could hear all this great music in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were writing. Yeah, Tom come and dancing. Right. Hey, get out. <laughs> like, how this music is great. Yeah, get out of my emotional orchestra space. Um, yeah, and then something else that really helped me was um, – you remember how I said that my father gave me a typewriter when I was, you know, seven. The sound of those keys and the the, the tactile nature of it, the clunky, clunk, the feedback of the, you know, that's what made me fall in love with writing. And so one day we discovered these keyboards that look like typewriters and they have like mm. that kind of uh, clunky, uh, delayed, you know, hitting the key feeling to them and it gives a sound. And that was a huge, huge step for me in becoming, uh, being able to write more than a few paragraphs mm -hmm. because it connected me to my seven-year-old self who felt the magic of the, the typewriter. And so, you know, being able to use a keyboard like that made a huge difference. You know, eventually I gravitated to um, a keyboard that just has more feedback when your keys touch it and it has a sound. But I also found you can get these programs where you can actually get the, the computer to give you an audial sound of a key hitting. And, and so mm -hmm. I played around with all these things until I found, you know, what the right balance. Um, also, I found things like writing at sunset and uh, sunrise, um, you know, lighting a candle. Um, and, you know, sometimes I wouldn't need to do these things, you know, once I got into a flow, but it, you know, I would share these things with you. And then when I got stuck, because when you're stuck and you have writer's block, you can't really think. And so you need a partner like Carmen or your, you know, somebody in your life, or maybe even just write a list of these things that help when you, when you discover them. And then you can always reference that, or they can kind of say to you, Hey, go light the candle, you know, just do 10 minutes, see what happens, you know? 
put the yeah. music on and you know sure enough it it begins and uh, i should really add as well like you know things like meditation are fantastic for this because mm. um if anyone's uh, listening that's done meditation you know we all know whenever you sit down to do anything your mind will suddenly give you every single reason why you shouldn't be there doing mm. it mm. so I, I chose meditation because that's the one where you're literally observing the mind or you know or or you can hear the mind most clearly and it'll be saying things like this is uncomfortable why am i doing this I could be doing something else something else is way more interesting you're an idiot uh no you're great you know and it just it runs through its little routine for about five minutes and then eventually it settles down and i found that whether I, if i go for a run it'll do the same script why are you running this is stupid we could be eating <laughs> pizza you know <laughs> Um, and it's true for writing as well. You sit down to write something and your mind will just bring out its little script. And so sometimes you just have to let it have its moment, maybe even write out whatever it's saying. And then as you've like got your body into the process of fingers moving and thinking and typing, then you can delete that bit and just get on with what you were doing. And I think what was so interesting me observing you as well, because I think we've been together six years now. Yeah. And the gaps between when you'd be inspired to write and then, mm. then it would stop. Yeah. It used to be really big, but yeah. every, every, as time went on, they would get smaller. So then you go back to writing, then, then yeah. you'd stop, but then that gap would be smaller. You'd, there'd be less time between each gap. Yeah. So I yeah. think it's so important for people to know that even if you're struggling, just keep going and figure out what works for you. Like I, I would say to you, like that list, I knew movement really helped you like to just get out and move. Or yeah. remember, I always say like, go throw yourself in the ocean. I know yeah. that works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no way after we'd had a row, she'd be like, go throw yourself in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they just got smaller and smaller until there came a point where you're like, okay, I'm getting this book done by this time. Yeah. And that probably wouldn't have worked, you know, 10 years ago. You know, uh, so it's a process, but- yeah. I think it's so important for people to realize that the things that are the hardest, if you are called to do that, you have to do it. Like if you yeah. hadn't got this book out, you yeah. know, you'd still be suffering, you know, it was something would, you had. That's to right. Do. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I would. I Like now I feel like such a big release because I, you know, I've carried this uh, story around for 10 years. You know, I, I had like a little jotter on the walk where I, took probably 10 days of notes and then I forgot all about it. So everything I wrote was from memory. And I, I, I do have a writer's, you know, memory for remembering conversations and details. You remember and everything. Remember everything. <laughs> Much to um, my chagrin. Yeah. <laughs> I remember all things Tom does wrong. I remember them. Um, um, so, you know, like, but that was taking up data in my brain, you know, it was taking up space mm -hmm. and, you know, um, now I'm at a place where I can let that go because it's, you know, I've done my, I've, this was my mission, you know, I've done, I've done my mission and, um, the, the pain of having not achieved it or having not even started on the journey to doing it, that was, that made me miserable on the inside. I mean, not outwardly, but like inside it was chipping away at my soul. And, you know, you know, that you've, you had to help hold me through that many times where I was just you know, in the depths of despair and um, just thinking you're never going to get to the end or it's too painful. And, um, you know, I should, you know, should also say during that 10 year process, you know, 
the latter two when I was actually physically writing, and that was probably the hardest part because, you know, I was regurgitating the pain of that I'd sort of healed healed and in a way I had to recreate the wound to to dig around in there. Um, but those eight years before, you know, that was a journey of exploration and, you know, healing for me. You know, I discovered things like meditation. I went to ashrams. I did Vipassanas. I did ayahuasca's. I discovered breath work, ecstatic dance, breath work, all these things, you know, it was, there was many steps on that journey. Um, you know, living in loads of different countries, you know, outside of the environment, uh, where I, where I grew up. All of those things allowed me to get different perspectives on things, to, you know, in some sense, have more distance from them, to be able to see them in different ways, um, and, you know, to be at peace with them, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, all of that was vital for writing a book like this, you know. Mm-hmm. My next book's going to be like Elves, Dragons, and Dwarves. It's, you know, it's going to be... <laughs> That's that's what I tell myself, but well, where can people find your book? Because it's just out now. Where's the best place for them to go and and be able to buy it wherever they are in the world? Okay. Well, you should be able to go into any boutique or local bookstore if you want to support a local bookseller. Um, and they should be able to order it in for you. So the book's called Walk With Me When Grief Passes, Love Remains. And it's by Peter Nathaniel Lee. Or you can go to um, my website, peternathanielee.com, and you'll be able to uh, see all the links to the major retailers such as Amazon, Apple, Barnes & Noble, uh, I think Google Books. Yeah, all of the big ones. You should be at Booktopia. Um, You should be able to order it. I do know as of now, so at the end of September, I think there has been some kind of paper shortage due to COVID. So, you know, I think there is a slight delay with the print and demand service at the moment. So in but some countries, very quick. if you, if you, yeah, like you, can, yeah. you can download it on Kindle mm-hmm. straight away, or you can get it on paperback or hardback. And there is a different cover for the paperback and hardback. So this is the, this is the paperback. Not that I'll explain it. It's, it's beautiful blue, the paperback. And then the hardback is the hardback is actually the cover art is by one of the most important people in the story. Yeah. So which is very, I'm not going to give it away, but the cover art for the hardback is that person. So it's very cool. Well, Peter, it's been so good to have you. We're um, so glad this book is out in the world. And then there's book two and book three that are just waiting to get started. So that number one is out there. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything you wanted to add that maybe we didn't cover? Um, is there anything we haven't covered? And I'll make sure all these places are in the, the show notes so you can get his website, everything we yeah. talked about. I mean, look, I would just say to anybody that's listening to this um, who thinks, oh, you know, I, I would like to do the Camino, but I'm, I can't, I'm too old or I'm too fat or I'm, you know, my hip's dodgy or whatever it is, um, can't do it. Like I met people, I met somebody that walked from Siberia. I met four lads that walked from Hungary. I, I met a guy who'd walked from Germany. Um, I met the oldest person I met was 86. Um, I met a lot of people that was over, over 70 that walked in. Um, 
And, you know, I would just say if you're in a, in a dark place, you know, if you're depressed or you're going through a tough time in your life and you can't see a, a direction to, to go in, do yourself a favor, fly to St. Jean Pideport, go to the pilgrim's office, get yourself a pilgrim passport and follow the yellow arrows all the way to the sea. And everything will change, I promise. Follow the yellow arrows to the sea. I yeah. love that. Yeah. Oh. Oh, well, thank you so much, Peter. I love you tons. <laughs> miss you. And uh, oh, I should also too. say, um, for anybody who wants to follow along my journey to Rome, which is going to be starting tomorrow, um, I'm going to be, um, I've got a GoFundMe page, page to raise money for a couple of uh, suicide prevention charities. And I'll be posting like a video blog on my Facebook and Instagram. If you want to help support, uh, donate or just buy me a coffee or even just leave a comment every day and give me some encouragement, uh, that'd be amazing. So yeah, come walk with me. I'll get, I'll put that all in the show notes as well. All right. Bye for now. All right. Cheerio. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd absolutely love if you left a review on iTunes. It really helps me to get the podcast out there to support more people just like you to create soulful lives. And as a thank you, I'd love to send you my 20 personal affirmations for manifesting an aligned, magical, and fulfilling life. To access this freebie, simply send a screenshot of your review to soulcraft at karmamarshall.com and I'll send you my favorite affirmations and mantras straight to your inbox. All my love and I'll see you on the next episode.